Warning, some things in our podcast may not be suitable for everyone. We talk about cults and murders, and due to the nature of our podcast, may use harsh language at times. Viewer's discretion is advised. And also, we can't pronounce anything. Hi guys, welcome back to Cults and Crime. A true crime podcast featuring cults, crime, and everything in between. And welcome back and Happy New Year's! Happy New Year! You guys know we took a little bit of time off one week for our birthday and for the New Year's. But we are back and we are ready to get started and do we have a cult for you? Oh my gosh, I have been waiting for this. I know, I missed you guys! Missed you too. So Jamie, what are we talking about? Guys, this week we are covering the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Turn on, tune in, drop out. This is a phrase coined by Timothy Leary that describes the psychedelic use in the 1960s. Turn on your upper consciousness, tune into the world around you, and drop out of societal expectations. No one believed in this more than the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and its founder, John Griggs. John Griggs was born in 1943 in Texas, but grew up in Anaheim, California, home of Disneyland. While growing up in California, he began to grease his hair back into a pompadour and began wearing white shirts and biker jackets. Jamie, I have to ask, what's a pompadour? Um, you know the, the hairstyle of Elvis Presley? Yes. Yeah, pompadour. So I'm legitimately thinking like pom-poms. <laughs> no. Well, he was just, he began dressing similar to the greaser style that would be popular by the movie Grease. He spent his childhood getting into fights and leading a greaser gang called the Blue Jackets. He was also a championship wrestler and for fun would practice his fighting moves by beating up out-of-towners and he also liked to sneak into Disneyland. Oh, what a badass. He graduated in college in 1961 and married his high school sweetheart, Carol. Being married did not slow him down and he left the Blue Jackets for the Street Sweepers, an Anaheim car gang known for drug-fueled car races and wearing German arm and helmets. So in general, being a nuisance to the community. Hey, everyone's a nuisance now and again. <laughs> His gang activities did not prevent him from getting employment, and he worked as a trash collector for the city and was known to be always smoking enormous joints on the job. Really taking that job seriously. <laughs> well, back in the day when you could work for the city and, you know... He did briefly leave the gang activities and his city job behind when he moved into a mountain when he moved into the mountains and attempted to become a trapper. This was short-lived and he moved back to Anaheim and joined a southern LA motorcycle gang and soon became their leader. Many members of the group became addicted to heroin and other hard drugs. They would make smuggling trips down to Mexico and would hold up gas stations for money to fund their addiction. At this time, he had not tried LSD, but after hearing speeches by counterculture icons like Timothy Leary, he was eager to try it. At the time, the drug was expensive, around $50 for five doses. He heard that an LA movie producer kept a stash at his home, and John was curious. He decided to round up some of his buddies and his gang members and pay the producer a visit. They arrived in the middle of a party and took the whole stash of LSD at gunpoint. The producer was reported to have said, have a great trip, as the gang rode away with their stolen drugs. The gang rode up the mountain and took 100 milligrams of LSD, over four times the normal dose and tripped for hours. This was a revolution for the group. When their trip was over, each man laid down their knives and threw away their guns. John jumped up and screamed, this is it, this is it. John and select members of the gang who had taken LSD with him started to form their own beliefs. 
After their trip, they were convinced that psychedelic spirituality was the key to curing societal woes and that they were never again to use violence. They believed that they needed to bring LSD to as many people as possible. Their first step was to hang around bars and wait for their friends to be drunk. They would then kidnap them and bring them into the woods or the desert and dose them with LSD. That seems very, like, violent to me. It does seem a little counterintuitive to their anti-violent kind of vibe they're going around. Yeah, doing well, right you now. know, drugging people seems a little violent. Just a, just a smidge. Especially when, like, drugging them against their will and then, like, carrying them out to the desert, you know? Yeah. The group would end up having many different drug experiences, some spiritual, some more averagely psychedelic. Their street sweepers disbanded, but rejoined under a new spiritual ideal. With John at the helm, the group changed their already intact drug smuggling operations to suit their new purpose, to fund LSD for all. They started dealing LSD and marijuana, not for profit, but to spread their spiritual awakening and their psychedelics to the world. They became vegetarian pacifists. And they put that into their drug smuggling operation. To replace violence, they got clever with their smuggling operations. One brother carried over 100 kilos of marijuana on a flight from Mexico to California. Others would hide the drugs in vehicles and drive them across the border. They would use fake IDs that they would get by applying as people who had died previously. Due to the technology at the time, they were able to slightly disguise themselves and pull this truck multiple times a day at the same DMV. I honestly cannot, cannot understand that. Well, our agencies talk to each other a lot more than they used to, you know? No, I'm not even, you said the same DMV. Yeah. So I'm thinking about the same exact person seeing the same exact guy and thinking, oh, this guy has a mustache. He's cool. This guy has a little bit of shaggier hair. He's fine. I can't imagine that. Well, think about it. They probably didn't go to the same teller. You know, how many people work at our DMV? Yeah, but I'm assuming back in the day, it was a lot smaller of an operation. Well, I guess it depends on the DMV you pick. Yeah, that is true. And they were in Anaheim, so probably a pretty big one. They had access to pretty big ones anyways. This trick would also help them if they ever got caught. If a brother was ever arrested, they would be booked under one of their false identities. Another brother would come bail them out, and that identity would never be used again. John was getting good success building up the brotherhood, but still wanted to meet the person who inspired him to first take LSD, Timothy Leary. Leary was a clinical psychologist at Harvard University. While at Harvard, he conducted experiments testing LSD for clinical use. Leary's experiments included the Concord Prison Experience and the March Staple Experiments. He also openly advocated for the use of the drug. John traveled from California to New York to meet Leary. They had become infatuated with each other. John respected Leary as a guru and a pioneer, and Leary seeing the potential of John's organization and his ideals. Leary would end up joining the cult after meeting John and would move to California to help set up his cult as a new religious organization. This wasn't just set towards enlightenment, but also a strategic move. The organization would be tax-free and be afforded more protections due to their church status. This included them being able to continue taking LSD. The Brotherhood claimed the drug to be a religious sacrament. That idea came directly from Leary and saved the Brotherhood on multiple occasions. The brothers' headquarters would be set up in Laguna Beach, California, and the founders now included Leary. Laguna was an artist community tucked against sandstone hills and overlooked the Pacific Ocean. The views brought the artists, and the waves brought the surfers. The atmosphere was a perfect hippie paradise and was amazing for the Brotherhood. 
The Brotherhood supplied the LSD and the artisan surface called Laguna Home. Because of this, many people referred to the because of this, many people referred to Laguna as Freaktown. Hippies walked barefoot in the streets, tripping on acid, and the Brotherhood felt right at home. They opened up a small business called Mystic Arts. They sold health foods and smoking paraphernalia. The business made good money and helped them spread the word on their new budding religion. It became a hangout for the same type of people their religion spoke to, free-thinking, countercultural drug users. The business and its earnings allowed them to expand their smuggling operations to Europe and Afghanistan, where they formed the Hippie Highway. Starting in London, England, and ending in Kathmandu in Nepal, this allowed for a new type of drug trade to come to America, Hadish. Hadish is made of the resin of the cannabis plant and can cause a much stronger effect than marijuana. With Hadish came a new method of drug smuggling. They would hollow out surfboards and stuff them full to 20 to 30 pounds of hash. They figured no one in Afghanistan would know the difference between the weight of a normal surfboard or one stuffed with drugs. And they were right, this was extremely successful for them. The real interesting thing about their drug smuggling operation is they were not in for money. See, that's what I find very interesting. No money in it? Well, at this time, LSD could easily sell for $20 a hit. They were selling it for 10 cents and even gave discounts if you bought in bulk. Anything to further the use of LSD. As their operations increased, they began to buy vehicles in Germany and drive them to Afghanistan, pack them full of drugs and ship them back to Canada before driving them over the border to America. This was also very successful, and they would end up shipping over 12 Volkswagen buses stuffed to the brim with hash. At this time, Leary was really embedding himself in the organization. He and his wife had moved to Laguna and rented a house on the beach overlooking the ocean. While John welcomed Leary with open arms and held him as a spiritual guru, other members weren't so enlightened. He often copied the clothing and mannerisms of John and tried to appear as laid back as possible. But a lot of the members knew his background. He came from Harvard University. He was an alumni. He was a smart guy. He took money from big companies, which was not really a thing the Brotherhood would support. He was everything they were fighting against. And what's even worse, he drank and ate meat, something the Brotherhood was actively against. But the power slowly started to switch from John to Leary, and with it, the culture of the organization started shifting from religious hippies to the hippie mafia. Leary loved being in charge of the Brotherhood. He thrived on the attention he gained from the followers and being the center of attention. This was way more important to him than the actual Brotherhood itself. So, in a surprising move to all but Leary, he decided to run for governor in 1969. So, the hippie guy wanted to be a governor? The fake hippie guy. This is the Harvard guy. Oh, well, totally different then. As long as he's doing drugs, it's fine. <laughs> Timothy Leary ran for governor. Timothy Leary ran for governor of California against Ronald Reagan. The motto was, come together, join the party. He picked this he picked this slogan in honor of the John Lennon song, Come Together, that was written for Leary. His platform included California leaving the United States and legalization of marijuana. This brought attention to the Brotherhood, attention that the Brotherhood had actively at this point been trying to avoid. John had tried so hard to keep his organization under the radar, but Leary was appearing on television actively talking about them. Lucky for the Brotherhood, Leary was not successful in his attempts and lost against Reagan. Even running for office brought him at odds with the Brotherhood. It brought them undue attention they did not want. 
Larry was making waves in the Brotherhood, and not all of them bad. Due to his Harvard connections, he introduced the brothers to Nicholas Sands and Tim Scully. Nick Sands was newly released from jail for his underground chemistry, and Solly was an Oswald chemist. Sand and Solly were responsible for the 5,000 doses of DOM, a type of psychedelic, that caused many to overdose at the Human Bean in San Francisco, January 14, 1967. They had given the drug out for free to promote it, but had messed with the dose due to their own tolerance to the drug. DOM also had a slower onset than most LSD, so many people took multiple doses, believing that the first one was a light hit. They had sent many to the hospital, and the press claimed it to be LSD that had sent the tripping hippies to the hospital. This introduction brought the Brotherhood a new supposedly more pure version of LSD. The Brotherhood thought that the purer the drug, the more religious the experience. The LSD was easier to make with a higher yield and contained 300 mg dose more than three times the average at the time. The Brotherhood adopted this type of LSD as their own and it became their signature drug, dyeing it orange and calling it orange sunshine. The Brotherhood, with the help of Sands and Scully, began to produce orange sunshine in mass and underground lamps in San Francisco. The drug was all over America and even reached celebrities like the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix. Because of this, the demand for acid really started to rise. Wait, wait, wait. Acid, not LSD? Um, is any type of L- um, acid, LSD, they're all psychedelics. Okay, so you're just talking about acid. Okay, so there is a difference though, right, between the two? Um, acid is the street name for LSD, or like slang. At this time, the Brotherhood was still not trying to make money off the drug. They still wanted it to be free and to get as, into as many hands as possible. So with the help of the new system and the high yield of the new drug, they practically gave the drug up for free. They gave it away for 10 cents and even 5 cents if you bought in bulk. They tried to flood the market to lower the price of LSD so that anyone who wanted to could get their hands on it. Maybe because of the popularity of Orange Sunshine, or maybe because of Timothy Leary running for governor on a pro-drug platform, but President Lyndon B. Johnson on January 17, 1968, denounced the trafficking of LSD and claimed it would be his priority to end the slavery of the youth on drugs. John saw this as a sign to get out of Laguna Beach, and the police had started to crack down on them as well. They harassed and arrested anyone they could, especially people with long hair that they thought were hippies, and would find any reason to arrest them. From littering to smoking, it didn't matter because the war on LSD had started, and the Brotherhood was right in the center. John decided to move the organization to a commune just out of Palm Springs. They called their paradise Idle Wild Ranch. With the creation of the ranch, John began to slow down with his actions in the cult. He'd stopped being actively part of the smuggling operations and left that to other brothers, and began focusing more on the relationships in the organization and within his own family. But unfortunately, the Idle Wild Ranch would not be the paradise John had dreamed of it. While the ranch had everything John wanted, communal living with LSD ceremonies on the weekends, it would end up being the LSD weekend ceremonies that would truly end the hippie smuggler. A brother had bought a synthetic form of LSD back from Switzerland, and John took the drug to celebrate the birth of a new child that he had just five days prior. John took as many of the psilocybin crystals as he possibly could, and just an hour later, he started yelling that no one should take them because they were a total overdose. 
John stayed on the ranch throughout the night, but finally allowed his wife to take him to the hospital the next day. But it was too late. John died of overdose just a few feet from the emergency room. This caused the Brotherhood to lose faith. Many left to the ranch, and the ones that were left more focused on the drug aspect over the spiritual aspect of the group. They could not replace John, but they could create a council of sorts. One person would be responsible for each aspect of the drug trade. And after the death of John, it truly became all about the drug trade. The brothers were pushing at higher and higher quantities, and now started doing so for profit. Many of the brothers became rich from the drug sales and would buy mansions and nice cars. Gone were the hippie ways and now they were really living up to their name, the hippie mafia. With the increase of drug activity came an increase in violence, and they, and they soon began to branch out into other drugs. As LSD was popular during their time, later on in the organization became the rise of cocaine. Cocaine was considerably more addictive than LSD. And cocaine was easier, and at this time, cocaine was easy, easier to move and had a larger profit margin for the brothers. They still used the same process of boarding planes with fake IDs, but instead of hash or marijuana, they began smuggling kilos of cocaine. They expanded their drug smuggling to South America, and the introduction to working with the cartels hardened the brothers. Their pacifism would not hold against the machine guns they came across, and they began to carry guns with them as well. Addiction was also running rampant amongst the group. They began to use opium and other narcotics. The organization had changed. Many members did not like these changes and turned to FBI informants on their very own brothers. They had not signed up for violence and addiction. They wanted to go back to their hippie roots and they figured the best way to do that was to get rid of the bad seeds that was poisoning their family. Also, not very hippie-like of them. I guess I feel like a hippie thing is like, you know, you see injustice in the world, fix the injustice. I don't know. For me, I feel like hippies are all peace and love, and they don't really, they just want peace and love. And they're not going to go out of their way to throw somebody in jail, and they're not going to go out of the way to rat out somebody who's a quote unquote brother, right? I don't know. That's my perspective. <laughs> when Nixon became president, he began, the, he began to launch the official war on drugs. Before the government had focused on drug smuggling and manufacturers, now they're cracking down on drug users. Gone was the hippie days and the 80s were starting. Between the FBI informants and the FBI surveillance on the Brotherhood, they had enough to indict. In 1972, a grand jury indictment were made for over 42 members of the Brotherhood. Many ran, but over half of the 43 were immediately caught. Many more would be caught in the upcoming years. But the Brotherhood never truly died. Many continued to sell drugs underground, and some members of the hippie mafia continue to do so to this day. Wow, that is absolutely insane. It's, I think what's really cool about this cult is that they really were founded on the idea of being pacifists. Yeah, but they strayed so far from it. I guess that's kind of what happens when, you know, your spiritual leader dies and the people that are in charge just want the money. Well, wrong people in power is very dangerous, right? And I think John Griggs is really interesting because he was really charismatic. You know, every single one of the like the gangs that he was in like the biker gangs and you know the gracer gangs he was the leader like he would switch from gang to gang and become the leader of each of those gangs well, yeah some people are natural born leaders and natural born charismatic people that is the end of this episode right yeah guys that's what i have on the on the hippie mafia who is still here today guys 
They are not known as the hippie mafia or even the Brotherhood of Eternal Love anymore. They're just your average drug dealers. The organization truly did die with John Griggs. That is so crazy. Okay, so this month is very special to us. So guys, we're in January and January is Stalking Awareness Month. Which is something that both of us hold near and dear to our hearts. And we are going to focus on that with our very next case. I learned about this case originally when I went to a stalking awareness class through my internship. And it was really interesting and sad and heartbreaking. But also it's really good if you want to learn more about it. As she had me research this case, I was crying. I'm not joking, I had tears falling down my face. It truly is a story of someone who did everything right. But the justice system is not capable of handling these cases correctly. We are doing a lot better now, but back when this case happened, that just wasn't the case. So we are to be covering the case of Peggy Clink. Production by Jamie. Production and editing by Nicole. Our intro music is Wrong by Dan Henning. Our background music is In Albany, New York by the 129ers.